Hey everybody, it's Adrian Vandenberg. Uh, you may know me from my 13 years with Whitesnake. I've got my new band, Vandenberg's Moon Kings, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. So I would say, turn it up! Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of that, which has come to be called Focus on Metal. Hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode with uh, Richie's chat with Robin McCauley. If you haven't heard that one, then make your way up to iTunes, Amazon Music, or to focusonmetalpod.com, and uh, you can get that episode streamed directly into your little metal ear holes. But this week, we kick off... The first of two weeks of talking with Warren's Joey Allen. And the primary focus of the chat is the anniversary of their album, Dog Eat Dog. But, uh, you know, within there is also Richie's going to probe him about all kinds of other things as well. But uh, like I said, this is week one of two of that. And I just figured that, you know, we've been having several weeks of, you know, almost hour long or over hour long episodes and the weather is getting warmer. People got things to do. And so I thought, why not split this one off into uh, two more manageable bite sized chunks for your listening pleasure. And speaking about listening pleasure, I got to say like the last probably week and a half has definitely been a bonanza of vinyl for me. I know if you folks uh, keep track of us on Twitter, I've been posting a couple of things that have come on, but I did actually make a count before I sat down to do this episode to see what the uh, the latest pile was. And uh, over the last probably week and a half, I'm looking at uh, 22 single and double albums that I've had roll in. And these aren't freebies. This is stuff I'm going out and buying. And that doesn't include the one that just rolled in today, finally, which was the uh, five-disc set for uh, Rush's Moving Pictures, the uh, the anniversary box set. But I've definitely been getting some really great stuff in, including uh, all of the new Armored Saint reissues. Those are great. A couple of rarities that I posted up on uh, on Twitter and just, yeah, all kinds of good stuff. But it has definitely been uh, a good couple of days of vinyl. I have uh, most certainly caught the vinyl bug as strong as I did way back when I was a wee metalhead. So as I said in the uh, the beginning there, this week we are going to be diving into Warren's 1992 release, Dog Eat Dog. And actually, you know, weirdly for Focus on Metal, usually we do these anniversary episodes like months after the anniversary. This time we're actually early and because uh, this thing didn't uh, come out until August. got recorded February to April of 92, but didn't get released until August. Produced by the uh, incredible Michael Wagner. And, uh, you know, in the liner notes, Janie Lane does actually write, this album is dedicated to Joey Allen, one of the most underrated guitarists in rock today. So it's only fitting that, you know, if the album got dedicated to Joey Allen, why not talk to Joey Allen about the album? And that is exactly what Richie did. And you are going to hear the results of that over the next two weeks. But more importantly, you're going to hear the beginning of it right now. I need to ask you... 
when I was supposed to do this on Friday, you said you were rehearsing some dog eat dog songs. How many of them do you put in the set now? Uh, we're putting four songs right now uh, that are in the set. Okay, nice. Because la- I think the last time I saw you, you only did one. Probably. Where'd you see us? Um, Tupelo Music Hall in New Hampshire. Wow, that was a long time ago. A couple of years ago, yeah. 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 yeah we probably just did Machine Gun, which we do a lot. Yeah. Um, because it was the first the first single off that record, but um, yeah, there's four songs right now in the set, and possibly you know more. We'll see what we'll see how it all rolls out. Nice, nice. Yeah, right. We're going to talk about Dog Eat Dog, and but I need to go back a little bit and talk to you about Bo Hill. Um, okay, I've interviewed Bo, and I'm, I know Mike Slammer played some guitars on the on the first two albums, and you did some, but. The way I want to approach this is I interviewed Bo about an album he did with Twisted Sister called Love Is For Suckers. Right. He had Red Beach play on that. Now, the process of with that with, with Bo was he'd get the Twisted guys to play and then he'd get Reb to play the same parts and then he'd choose which one was better. And he said over 90% of the time, Reb's parts were better. Was that the way Bo did it with you, with ye guys, that he got Mike to play all the parts and ye guys to play and just pick mics? That's not how I understand it. If he did that, then that's that's crooked. What he did, and, and just so you're aware, from my understanding, unless Bo did something that nobody else is aware of, Mike played some solos, not all solos, okay? I played solos. I played many solos on the first two records. I could go track by track and tell you which ones I played that I sat there and recorded. I could go track by track and tell you what solos I played on Cherry Pie. Okay. You know? So what he did was, you know, he thought that Warrant needed an Ed Van Halen in the band. Warrant didn't have that. Warrant wasn't that type of band from the get-go. We weren't that type of band in clubs. We were, we were who we were. And that's why we got signed. You know, Janie wrote some great songs, and we delivered them the way we did as a band, period. What Bo wanted to do was Bo wanted to have a player in the, in the you know on the records that was an Eddie Van Halen-esque type of guy. And at the time, neither Eric nor I were, were of that caliber, hands down. Not, you know, debating that at all. So what Bo said and did was, we've got this guy, I'm going to bring him in, this, and from my perspective at that time, you got to remember I'm in my early 20s, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just signed to a major label, and I don't know how it all works, and he goes, we're, we're going to bring this guy in to help out, and I, I thought like I didn't have a choice, that's how it was put to me, like you don't have a choice, this is what we're doing, uh, just want to be on the up and up, and I'm like, okay, you know, not cool, but I guess, and what I immediately started doing with Mike Slamer, because I didn't like that, was I, and Mike is a wonderful human being, okay, this is not by any means, you know, uh, you know, mean anything derogatory about Mike, but I started taking lessons from Mike because I didn't like somebody else playing on my records, period. Yeah. Okay, and, and I started taking lessons a lot from Mike, so... You know, I could get I could get better in that we didn't need to bring him in. And you know, then we did the second record and 
Bo brought it in again. So to me, my perspective is that, especially after doing a record with Michael Wagner, which we did Dog Eat Dog with, which there were no, nobody but myself and Eric played on that record, guitar-wise, I think that was an easy way out for Bo. So he didn't have to sit there and work with me. I mean, go listen to the solo for Big Talk. Tell me what's wrong with that. That's me. Go listen to the solo for Heaven. The whole front end's me. The back, the back, like last four seconds, the cadence up, that's Mike. So what's the difference to me? The mm. difference to me is, is that, you know, he wanted a guy that just could come in and nail it in a take or two instead of having you sit there and work with me for an hour or two. That's my personal opinion, if you really want it. And when we did Cherry Pie, and and Mike played less solos on Cherry Pie than he did on the first record, um, if you take a listen to, to Brainmaker, that's me. Take a listen to uh, Blind Faith, that's me. We can go on and go track by track if you want to. Okay, But... The bottom line is, is when I was recording those solos, I did them with the engineer. Bo was too busy sitting in the back vocal booth dealing with winger business because he managed winger at the time. Yeah, that's right. And Bo would Bo would open the door in the studio in his, in the vocal booth and listen to my take and go, "Nope, do it again." And me and the engineer would be sitting there going, "This that was a great run. Why?" Why do it again? He didn't. He wasn't even vested. He was vested with Janie. He worked with Janie plenty, but when it came to guitars, he was he was already not interested in it before we even got started. Okay, um, you know, did the label and the management want you to work with Bo Hill on Dog Eat Dog? Because the first two records went multi platinum with him. No, it, after Bo did what he did on Cherry Pie, and after he was not you know, vested in the project like, like he was on the first one, we didn't want to work with Bo again. Okay. You know, and this is all, again, this is my remembering of how it went. And by the way, I've still got a great relationship with the engineer from Cherry Pie, Jimmy Hoyson. He came to one of our gigs. We invited him to one of our gigs. He's a, he's a very, very nice guy. And, and we even talked about doing something again, working together again. Because in my opinion, like I said, he produced Cherry Pie. Because when I did my tracks, Bo was busy with winger business. He can't dispute that. He also so can't dispute the fact that when we would leave the room that we were paying for through our record deal, he would pull winger into track on our dime. Wow. Winger boys told me that. So there's all kinds of crap that goes on when you make a record. There's all kinds of crap in this business. Hmm. I don't have a personal relationship with Bo Hill. I, I, I would never, I don't like what he did to to Eric and I during one of, you know, either of those records, and, and I would never work with him again, ever. Who, who took you know? it, who, out of you and Eric, who took it the worst about the way he did the guitars? Eric. Eric did. Yeah. Okay. And Eric's my brother. I'm, you know, Eric, look, in this band, for the most part, you know, on the last record, Louder, Harder, Faster, I played all the solos on Dog Eat Dog. I played most of the solos. There's one There's one pass in Machine Gun uh, in the pre-solo pre where Eric had some stingers. But that's just the way it rolled out. I mean, I practiced a lot. Um, not that Eric didn't practice or anything, but it's just how it rolled out in the band. 
and there's no animosity between Eric and I. You know, there's times like like let's go back to the first record, the solo to Thirty Two Pennies, me. You know, live, I taught that to Eric, so there was a balance on stage. Mm. You know, so I mean, there's there, we can go through this, and I've had this interview and talked about this so many fucking times until my face is blue. I'm not going to walk away from the fact that that happened, you know? Yeah. But my recollection of how it was managed with the people that were producing the record isn't, isn't great. It's not my recollection, but my feeling about it. Yeah. I felt like I had no choice, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then I can also empathize and with, with Bo and look at Bo and go, wow, he's got these two guitar players and neither of them is Ed Van Halen. That's what he thinks he needs. What's he going to do? He's going to go get a guy that's going to come in and help him make it that way, even though it sets up the band for some type of failure at some point if somebody doesn't step up and, you know, and get better at their instrument. Yeah. And, and you know, it is what it is. And it's, it's, it's over with. It's, it's, it's in the past. But at some point, I hope people stop asking. <laughs> okay. The only reason I'm asking is I've never interviewed you before. No, it's okay. I mean, if you look on the web... I've talked about it dozens of times. Yeah, that's true. You know, in the same way, I just it just gets it gets old for me to have to reiterate the same thing. And well, I interviewed Bo, and Bo said this. Well, you know, Bo doesn't remember the solo to um, Rainmaker because he wasn't in the studio when I did it. Yeah. How's that? Yeah. For an answer. So, let's, so I'm not, I'm not upset with you, but it's just like, fuck. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Let's move on from Bo then. You're, okay, great. Right. So you're going to start the third record. Tell me about the names of the producers that you wanted to work with. Michael Wagner's the name of the producer we wanted to work with. He was the only one? I think at the time, that's all I remember, to be honest with you, because I, I, I know we were fond of the Skid Row records. And we wanted to get heavier because if you listen to the first two records, the first record to me, the most of the mix is vocals and drums. There's not a lot of guitar mixed in there. So when we got to the second record, arguably so, Eric and I were better players because we had been out on the road for over a year. And if you just play more, you get better, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's more guitar on this on Cherry Pie than there was on the first record, as far as in the mix. Um, probably because of that, maybe it was easier for the guys, and because we were better players then to uh, to drop it in or pump it up a little bit. But when it came down to it, we wanted a heavier sound, and at the time, you know, with 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 Wagner doing, you know, the Skid records with Wagner doing. You know, mixing uh, the 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 Metallica record uh, "Justice for All" with him doing everything he did, docking. You know, working with George and all that. We just thought it was a good mix, a good uh, a good marriage. You know, and and when we met with him, he was fabulous. Yeah, you know, were any of the songs that ended up on "Dog Eat Dog" submitted for the first two records? Um, I don't, the only one that I remember that might have, that was around then would have been Sad Teresa. Okay. The last song. That the one we, we, yeah, that one we played in the, in the clubs, um, before we even got a record deal. So that, that's, that's the, the oldest one I remember. Um, 
and again, everybody's everybody's got a different memory. It was almost thirty years ago, you yeah, know. Yeah, I want to talk to you about Janie and his songwriting because, in a lot of ways, it's, it's unusual for one guy, especially the singer, to write all the songs. Um, did you talk to Janie about how he approached songwriting and what his methods were? Janie wrote the songs from the get go. You know, the 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 when somebody's that talented or gifted at writing. I mean, you, you know, you kind of just back off and let them do what they do. I mean, I just, I'm still to this day, if you look at the last three records that have happened with Warren, I think I've got a writing credit on one song. I'm not a songwriter. I don't, you know, I, I'm just not that guy. I'm a guitar player. I'm, I'm, I'm a wingman. I'm not a guy that is, I don't have that knack. I don't have that melody knack. I mean, Robert has it. Jerry has it. Eric even has it more than I do. I don't have it. When you get a guy like Janie in the band that's so good at at it, that you, you just let him do his thing. I never wanted to interrupt the process. You know, I would support it if he would go, hey man, I've got this riff, come here, check it out, what do you think? And I would play along and help him out if he needed it. You know, or if he had something that was completely done, you know, or mostly done, and he brought it into rehearsal, and he would show me the riff, then I would have to play the riff. And, you know, if you're a musician or know very many musicians, not everybody plays the same way. Not everybody has the same feel, the same cadence. And so certainly, if I'm playing one of Janie's songs that he's written, and he's got to at some point go that's great that's that's it good you know and it's still going to be the way i'm playing it you mm. know um with palm muting and the way you pick up or down and i mean there's a lot of things that change so long story short i never really bugged him or got into his his process you know when i didn't he, i didn't want to interrupt it yeah when he presented songs to the band to play would he present the full song with, with no solo in it and then leave it up to you to do the solos? Did he play it acoustically to you? Usually he'd play it acoustically. Okay. So it's not like the, the rhythm parts for guitars, although they were they were there, there was there was some artistic freedom for, for me and Eric to play the way we played. You know, that's what I'm trying to say is that you don't you you, you know, just because you write a right you know smoke on the water you know not everybody plays smoke on the water like richie blackmore does yeah you know what i mean there's there's a way there's there's you know there's a soul and a heartbeat behind every musician and when you get four or five musicians together they're like fingerprints on a hand you know the pinky fingerprints different from the ring finger fingerprint the middle fingerprints different from the thumb fingerprint but when you put all those fingerprints together and make a fist you know you have a, you have a fist you have something powerful and that's the best way i can describe a band and our band is that you know lane had the gift for for writing and just as much as he had the gift for writing steven sweet our our drummer had the gift for singing those high melodies. Yes, he did. And so his voice is just as important and warrant as the song itself to me. And and the way that he plays open-handed on the drums, which not a lot of drummers do, 
And if you talk to any drummers that, you know, or cats that do it for a living, they'll tell you that's very unique, you know, and that has a lot to do with the sound of warrant. Same thing with the way Eric and I play, mm. you know, it, 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 it's all part of, part of that fist. Does that make sense? Yeah. Joey, yeah. did any of the songs ever change a lot then from when Janie brought it in that maybe the tempo changed on it or it got it got a lot heavier than what Janie envisioned in the beginning? Or did you more or less keep the same blueprint that he brought? The, the blueprint, if it was just, if you're talking about blueprint as far as, you know, the basic arrangement of the song. Yes. Yeah, probably for the most part they'd stay the same. Sometimes it would change. In pre-production, when you're working with a with a producer, producers can change it. You know, producers can say, "Play this writing A that's written, you know, all the way through this verse. Play it with all downstrokes, or play it with all upstrokes, or play it with down and upstrokes, because all three of those sound different." And so things like that, technical things like that would happen all the time. They would happen when you're setting a recording. Okay. Um, but as far as as far as arrangement and or the writing of it, I mean, it, it could change a little bit. But but the the way that Lane wrote back to that one question is that his thing was if it doesn't sound good on an acoustic guitar and it doesn't translate on acoustic guitar then no matter what what type of icing you put on the cake, the cake's still going to taste like shit. Yeah. You know? You got to have a great foundation to to have a great song. And when he would come up with something like Heaven, for instance, which was there before we even got a record deal, and there when I auditioned for the band, you know, you hear something like that, and you're like, fuck, this guy's a great songwriter. You know? Mm-hmm. And, um... You know, that's that's just the way it was. You know, a lot of the other bands in L.A. that had way better players, that had guys coming out of G.I.T. that could that could play circles around any of us. You know, their big, biggest thing they didn't have was songs. And that's a big difference, you know? Mm-hmm. You, can, you can be an amazing player. You can be, uh, you know, an amazing singer. You can be all kinds of things, but when it comes down to it, people remember the songs before they remember who sang them. Hmm. You know? Yeah. And no disrespect to anybody out there that's a great player. I, I'm a fan of a lot of guitar players, and, and uh, I can hold my own now. I've, I've really worked hard in the last, you know, 40 years to get better as a player, but, but um, I'm still not, you know nor will I ever be or ever pretend to be, of, you know, of anywhere close to like Ed Van Halen or, you know, Joe Satriani or Steve Vai, all those guys who I deeply love listening to. And I'm just not that guy, man. And it's okay. Hmm. You know, so, I, I, I can sleep at night. <laughs> so, Joey, whose decision was it to record the album in Morrisound Studios in Florida? Because prim- that studio <coughs> primarily was known for you know, debt metal and trash metal back then. My memory of that was that we wanted to get as far away from Hollywood and the glitz and glamour and shiny, you know, warrants a pop metal band as possible. And 
I don't know how that came up, but when it did and it was presented to the band, I'm sure we all said that's fucking perfect because we just wanted away from it, you know, and go somewhere where we could go for six weeks where it was just the band, you know, a small amount of our crew came with us and Michael Wagner and we spent six weeks down there and it was the best thing we ever did. It was the most fun I've ever had making a record. Michael Wagner is, is a mad genius in my eyes. Um, you know, not to belittle Keith Bolson, who we did a record with later, or Jeff Pilson, who's a, an equally great producer. It was just, we were all in our 20s making a rock record in Tampa, and we didn't have any, you know, none of the girlfriends or wives were down there. I mean, imagine, you know, and then you got Michael Wagner behind behind the desk. It was, it was brilliant. Yeah. How much pre-production did you do with Michael on the album? Probably not as much as we did with Bo. You know, after two records with Bo and two world tours, you get better. And I think just we demoed a lot for that record more than anything in my recollection. Um, and then once you once you nail it down, like I've got tapes out in my garage of the demo sessions for all those records of songs that didn't make didn't make the record. You know. Mm-hmm. So we, we spent some time, but I, you know, I don't remember exactly how much time we spent. Okay. But I would think it would be a little less than with Bo, maybe, because the band was, you know, probably playing better at the time. Mm. So what do you think then, Joey? What's the main differences between the way Michael produced you and the way Bo produced you? I think that a producer's job is to take the band and get the best they can down on on tape um i think that when you're not trying to make something that it isn't you're trying to take that that band and those songs and get them get the essence of what i was talking about before the the five fingers and the five separate fingerprints that make the band when you and get it on tape that's what's important as a producer, and that's what Michael did. Michael didn't try to make us something we weren't by bringing somebody out in from the outside to make the record. He, he wasn't trying to cut corners. He, he was more concerned with us as a band than Bo was from my perspective because of the way he handled the record, you know? Um, I, I just, you know, my experience is my experience. One of the other guys might say something different. For me, because I worked so fucking hard on that record to get rid of the stigma of somebody else playing on one of our records, that working with him, was it was like the perfect fit, you know, at the time. He cared. It was fun. It was never adverse. When you're trying to squeeze something out of a musician you know hey do that again try this do that blah 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 there's ways to do it without making it uncomfortable you know there's ways to motivate people without yelling there's ways to to bring the best out of somebody without yelling and without being you know adverse and and make somebody feel poor or, or not well and michael was that guy I mean, I'd love to do it. You know, he's retired. I'd love to work with him again. We we were talking about it prior to doing Louder, Harder, Faster, but 
with him in Nashville, it just didn't work for us, you know, at the time. Mm. But my, you know, my best experience ever working doing a record was was with Michael Wagner on Doggy Thought. Okay, by far. Was it was it easy to get the guitar sound you wanted on Doggy Dog with Michael, or was there a lot of trial and error? It was super easy. There was a company down in Florida called Thoroughbred Music. They brought in. We 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 got a hold of them. We had a bunch of our own gear. We had our road gear. We had our, uh, you know, the the amps from home you buy through the years that are badass. I had a dual rectifier, I think number four off the line. Michael had a Macintosh power amp. Michael had an ADA preamp that was killer. We brought all these guitars. We probably had 20, 30 guitars in the studio. And one day we told everybody else besides Eric and I, go away. And we had lined up cabinets and amplifiers in the main room of uh, Moore Sound Studios. And we just started going through them one by one. We'd plug in one amp to one cabinet. We'd go through all the cabinets. We'd, we'd find that right fit if we, you know, and, and we'd go keep on doing it, you know, at least six, seven amps, eight amps, maybe um, that, that just that uh, thoroughbred brought down. And I'm talking about old vintage Marshalls and fenders and high watts and everything you can imagine. And at the end of the day, you get about, you know, three or four tones and you send all the other gear back and that's it. And that's what we did. It was a fucking blast. <laughs> you see, we're on a mission from God. Doesn't it sound, are you a guitar player? I'm not. Doesn't it sound fun if you were one? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's like a kid in a candy store. Mike, Michael was, that's the difference between Michael. That's the way Michael did it. The way Bo did it was Bo would make you play bone dry without any effects, which is really hard. Now it's not because I'm a different player, but then it's really, really hard to play with no, you know, with very little gain and bone dry, uh, like a Malcolm Young, who was brilliant at it. It's harder than hell to play that way. And that's the way we did those records with Bo. Hmm. You know? I mean, we'd have a $250,000 budget, and he would make our bass player boil his strings. <laughs> you know? I mean, there's just stuff that you, that just is like, really? Come on. So, Michael was a pleasure, man. Well, now I, I interviewed Ty Tabor recently from King's X. Right. And he, I was talking to him about Michael because they did a couple of records at Michael. One right. of the things he said, because he's a producer now as well, he's got his own studio. He said Michael is a genius at capturing sounds and mic placement and all that. Was, was that something that you wanted to ask Michael about? Like, why are you doing this and wh why aren't we doing that? No, I just watched him work. I mean, I didn't, I'm not a producer. I don't own a studio. I don't, I don't even have a, you know, a, a digital studio in my house. If I do anything, I go to, go to somewhere, you know, with somebody that's got it. But Michael was that guy. He was immersed in all that. I agree with Ty. I mean, he, he used on songs like The Bitter Pill when there's an orchestra in there. Andy Warhol was right. We did that in the A room at Capitol Records in Hollywood and he had this thing at the time called a headphone mic and it was actually microphones in the ears of a mannequin <laughs> head okay so like 
when you listen to that CD, Doggy Dog, with your earphones on, it should be all around you, that, that, that orchestra. And that's the kind of things Michael did. I mean, who does that? Hmm. That's insane, right? Yeah. That's the kind of fun we had with Michael. You know, the uh, April 30, 2031, um, the apocalyptic, Lane's apocalyptic version of, of America, which which I hope doesn't come true anytime soon. On it, you hear in the very beginning, you hear the wind blowing. It's supposed to be, you know, the world's gone. We've just blown it all up. And there's a sign swinging in the wind. And that's actually my guitar strap squeaked. <laughs> and Michael, being Michael, when we were recording, he had heard it during a solo and goes, wow, you know, that's squeaky. And then later on, he goes, hey, go get that guitar with the squeaky strap. And I go up and picked it up, and he goes, and he pulls up April 2031, and he goes, make it squeak. And I made it squeak, and that's on the record. That kind of stuff with Michael. I mean, how fun is that? Yeah. You know? That's making a record to me. That's like great times. The band was firing on all cylinders. We were all getting along great. Janie was in a good place. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, this is pre when he got all dark with alcohol and everything. And it was great. Hmm. Whose idea was it to add the child's voices on the orchestra to some of the songs? I think that was Janie's idea. Okay. And were you in the studio when they recorded those parts? I don't remember. Okay. I, I plead the fifth. <laughs> what was your initial reaction then when you heard those completed songs with all those added into it? Um, I probably heard it like the day, because the, the, the way the studio worked for me is that we, we were living in Tampa. We had six weeks down in Tampa. We had um, everybody, uh, two band members would share a condo. So my, I was staying with Jerry. Because Jerry and I, you know, back in the day, we were all young. Jerry and I hung out more together than than Eric. Eric hung out with Janie. I hung out with Jerry. And Stephen kind of always just did his own thing. And then Michael had his own his own condo. And what would happen is about 10 in the morning, as you would hear this, this rental uh, Lincoln car, it, it would start up. You'd hear the engine rev like it was going to be blown up. And then you'd hear it screech down the down the parking lot to my condo and Michael would yell Dutsky <laughs> out the window and I'd roll out about ten thirty and go get in the car with him and and then he'd squeal out of the parking lot, you know, tearing the shit out of this poor rental car. <laughs> and Michael and I would go to the studio first. And Michael and I would be in the studio from about eleven till about we'd do three hours a day, maybe four sometimes, of guitar tracking. And then the other guys would roll in, and when the other guys would roll in, it'd be lunchtime, and Michael would probably claim, you know, food! <laughs> and we'd go eat somewhere for an hour, and we'd come back, and then they would get into Eric's tracks or vocal tracks. Um, and a lot of the vocal stuff was done at night. And I don't even know where those kids recorded. That could have happened post Tampa that could have happened in LA for all I know because I think some of the kids on there are friends of friends of the band or friends of Janie maybe hmm. so when you're tracking guitars with Michael how does he push you as a guitar player to get a better performance out of you well 
what's the best way? Like a like a great wingman. That's the best way I can say it. He he um he he's not he's not polite about it, but he's not angry about it. It's 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 the best of both worlds. I mean, the guy just the guy just knows how to communicate with musicians to where it makes it makes you want to want to keep going, even when your fingers feel like they're bleeding. Mm. You know, it gets to the point with Michael where you're like, you know, you get a track and he goes, "That was it. That was it." And you're like, "No, no, no, no! I could do it better. I could do it better." You know what I mean? Yeah. When you work with other producers, and I'm not going to name any names. Where you just want it to go away because it's so painful, you know. Yeah. And not and not fun. And you know, I mean, to me personally, you know, for all the records I've done, you know, which I think it's been six now. The first three with Janie, and the last three with Robert, or well, two with Robert, one with Jamie St. James. My favorite record, still hands down, Doggy Dog. You know, and it's probably the experience I had with Michael Wagner. Where the band was at the time, the band was in top shape. We had, you know, two world tours under our belts. Like I said before, just a fabulous experience. So he he uh, he would push you, but not to the point where you didn't want to be around him. You know, he'd push you and he'd get what he wanted, and then once he got what he wanted, he'd let you fuck around for another twenty or thirty minutes trying to do. You know, do it better when you probably didn't, and he would probably just use what he liked in the first place. Mm. Joel, you mentioned there that like Doggy Dog's your favorite album of the six you've done. Now, to me, and I got it when it came out. Um, it sounds like a complete album with peaks and valleys, like you know, mood-wise, rather than just a great collection of songs. It just sounds like a, a full record. Right. Do you agree with that? I think that it is. Out of all of them, and I think that comes with maturity. I mean, it's like anything, you know. The band. I mean, look at look at the trials and the tribulations from the first go. I mean, literally, if I didn't step up, you know, guitar wise and get my shit together and take lessons from Mike Slamer and 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 you know get better at my craft, I could have been replaced real easily, you know. But that wasn't the case, and and when that record was written and Lane got heavier, you know, being a guy that that grew up in the band, you know, Eric did too, so I don't want to sound like the only metalhead in the band, but being a guy that was into, you know, Priest and Maiden and UFO and, you know, like I was in a band with Lars Ulrich before Metallica even came around. And that is the absolute perfect place to stop for this week. Did Joey really say what he just said? Yeah, he did. And as I said, I'm cutting it off right here for the week. You can hear more about that on the next episode. I am in intense pain, Tinky. When we run part two of the interview with Joey Allen, all about Dog Eat Dog. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again, remember... Focus on Metal! is insignificant.
It's over. Go home.